you have your Bibles, would you please open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I pray you found that time of prayer fruitful for your own life and hopefully a little bit of just the value we place on God's desire to have qualified men be elders in his church. We are making our way through 1 Corinthians, about a third of the way through the book. I'm uh, grateful for some of the encouragement that you've all given me in this series. But before we begin, let me um, just another quick word of prayer before we open up God's word. Um, Father in heaven, thank you so much, God, for this uh, glorious morning in which we can sing about the power of the cross, that, God, we are a joyful people because you are a joyful God. God, thank you for the opportunity to, again, consider um, from these ancient believers and from the words of the Apostle Paul. And, God, we know that these aren't just Paul's ideas or words, but, God, you spoke through Paul. And so help us, Lord, to take these words seriously, Lord. Help us to obey them. And, and Lord, I pray that you would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. But God, in all things and in all ways, may our labor and our efforts um, glorify the Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. How do you identify yourself? When people first meet you and want to hear about you, what do you want them to know? Do you identify yourself by telling people what you do? Hi, my name is Joey. I work as a consultant for Fortune 500 companies. I'm not even sure that's a job, but it sounds impressive. Hi, my name is Chris Sharon. I am the youth pastor at Hope Community Church. Maybe you identify yourself based on relationship roles that you have. Hi, I'm Susie. I'm married to Joey. We have three children. What is the part about you that makes you you that you want others to know about? What are the things that you like to hang your hat on, as we would say? Having an identity isn't always a bad thing. It gives us meaning and purpose and direction. It's normal to have a sense of belonging. A sense of identity helps us to kind of ground us to reality and to the responsibilities we have. But yeah, as I continue to use this word identity, I think we all know that we live in a world in which it is highly obsessed with identity. In fact, so infatuated with this word, in 2015, Dictionary.com labeled the word of the year as identity. As it's been well noted before that we live in this post-truth, post-modern world of self-expression, individual liberties being the highest virtue of the day, people are obsessed with thinking about who they are, how they identify themselves. And so with the rise of identity politics, you see that there is no shortage of identities to claim. Whether based on lines of gender, sexual orientation, race, nationality, religion, or just about any other minority group you can think of, you can claim participation in. 
And so it is in this world of technology and post-enlightenment thought in which everything that we, this world that we live in is so plastic, it's malleable, it's, it could change easily. Things that we can do now, 100 years ago, would have been unthinkable. And so the values and virtues of first centuries are exchanged for the pursuit of individual liberty and self-expression. But my aim this morning is not, however, to talk about the morals of these cataclysmic changes in our culture, but really to show how for a Christian, that is someone who follows Jesus, how your identity is not plastic. It is not something given for individual license for you to pick and choose how you feel. For a Christian, you don't form your identity. You receive an identity. We are people who are in Christ. Everything about us, when we, the first moment we believe and are united to Christ by faith, everything changes. So when you first become Christians, you don't stop being who you are, but, but certainly there's a new value system. There's new hopes. There's new relationships with these people we call brothers and sisters in Christ. There's new things in which we used to think were okay are no longer okay. Your life is wrapped up in Christ. Your death is wrapped up in Christ. His resurrection is your resurrection. This is why Paul in Galatians chapter 2 would say this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This was the identity of the Apostle Paul, so absorbed and wrapped up into Christ. Did you notice how many times he said I in that verse in Galatians 2? I have been crucified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. All these personal pronouns. Paul is still clearly Paul, but his life is now in Christ. There are certain days of the year in which people more or less go public with their newfound identity. But for a Christian, we've always had this. We make known our identity and who we are. We go public by the waters of baptism. It's when we enter those waters, we are saying, this is how I identify that I died with Christ. I was buried with him. I was raised with Christ. I am now a part of his body and I now have a union with these people. This is the identity of every single person who is in Christ. And this is the reality that the New Testament reminds us of again and again. That if this is who you are in Christ, that's the statement of fact, the indicative, this then is how you should live. Gospel indicatives always inform the gospel imperatives. That since you are now holy in Christ, you ought to live like that. See, new status, new responsibilities. 
July 10, 2010, I got married. I walked into that church, Bay Valley Springs Community Church, as a single person. And somehow, miraculously, through the work of God, I said these vows, and she said them back, and no one had a gun to her head. She said them back. And we walked out as one flesh. Now, how tragic would it be that we get married, we make these vows in the sight of God, you are now one, and we go back and we live our lives completely individually to our own apartments as if nothing changed? There is a new status. We are married. With that comes new responsibilities. Remember the first time you put your child in the car? You know, when your wife is first pregnant the first time, it's kind of surreal. Like you're kind of a dad, but you're not really a dad. Do I celebrate Father's Day? You know. But when your children are born and you really are a dad, And when I put both those babies in that little Honda Fit that we had, I immediately recognized just how many bad drivers there are in the world. (laughs) I have never driven so safely and calmly in my life. Now, the fourth kid, you're like back to just whatever, (laughs) cruising around people, the six-hour-old baby in the car. But you see, new status. I'm a father new responsibilities. I need to make them safe. I need to provide and protect them. So it is for a Christian. New reality, new status, new responsibilities. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his exposition on Ephesians 1, says this, our greatest need as Christians is to become who we already are in Christ. And so this line that, that, that I just quoted by Lloyd-Jones seems to be Paul's main thought for the Corinthian believers. In chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul is emphasizing believers, Corinthian believers, you are God's holy people. Act like it. Last week we saw that since they were holy, the implication was that they must not tolerate sin. They don't tolerate sin corporately, and they don't tolerate it individually. But this week, Paul has a little different issue in mind. You can tell Paul has this oral report of all these issues, and he's just tackling one after another. And Paul wants to make it very clear to these believers, you are not acting true to who you are. Let's read the passage now in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by this power and by this, the spirit of our God. A good summary of these 11 verses is this. As set-apart people, you must live as set-apart people. Another way of saying this, as God's holy people, you must live as God's holy people. To be holy is to be set-apart. And that is what we have become when we became Christians. That is our new status That is how we identify. We are in Christ. We are holy. But we don't always live that way. And so in the passage that we have, it's a unique passage, but Paul here is helping us. The whole passage really is riding on this idea of wrongdoing. And the point that Paul is trying to make is is he's showing how it is incompatible for Christians who are holy to continue and to persist and to practice wrongdoing. And so what I'd like to do is just have two points for you this morning. And and what we're really going to see is how Paul wants to show us of what does it look like, practically speaking, to live as those who are set apart. How do we live as those who are set apart? And if I can maybe just say one quick thing before we jump in. Verse 11 is really the heartbeat of this passage. This is the verse I would encourage you to underline. And if you haven't already, commit it to memory. But before we jump into verse 11, the first way in which we are to live as people who are set apart as holy is this. Number one, first point, we learn to suffer wrongdoing. We learn to suffer wrongdoing. At the heart of the issue in Corinth that Paul addresses is how believers are to relate with one another when someone has been wronged. It can be very easy and tempting that when you go through your Bible reading plan and you come to 1 Corinthians 6, you think, well, I've never sued anyone, not my problem, not my chair, and we move on. But the principle that Paul is trying to instruct us in is how does the gospel or the wisdom of the cross teach us to relate to other Christian brothers and sisters when there are grievances, when there is conflict. And so sometimes we have to recognize We have good examples to follow. Sometimes we learn how to do something by watching how someone else does it. But sometimes we also learn by seeing a bad example of how not to do it. Unfortunately, the Corinthians are far more in the case of the latter. They are bad examples and they really serve as warnings of do not go this way. And so in essence, Paul here You think he's very strong and audacious in chapter 5 by telling them to purge the immoral person. But right here in chapter 6, Paul seems to be just as perplexed. In fact, the first word in the Greek is the word dare. It's almost like in this emphatic position. Dare you do this? Almost the audacity, the goal. How dare you 
bring lawsuits about your brothers and sisters in front of unbelievers. Paul here, the tone is very stark. He actually uses more irony. He, he actually says, I say this to your shame. And I don't know what to do with that sometimes. I know in our day and age, we don't like to hear shameful things. But Paul apparently thinks that shame has a role, a place to play in promoting godly behavior. But if you notice in verse 1, I'm reading from the ESV, it says, when one of you has a grievance, that's a type of word that would indicate some form of lawsuit. And so in essence, we're not just talking about, um, you know, a, a church court here. We're talking about something in which people are actually filing the papers and they're taking their brother or sister to court. Now, I think part of understanding this passage is also understanding a little bit of how the Roman and Corinthian law system worked. Now, when it came to the Roman criminal courts, those courts, for the most part, were known to dole out justice. They were fair. They were equitable. Okay? So when it came to criminal law, there's a sense in which it could be trusted. Paul here, though, is not talking about criminal law. He is talking about civil cases in which it could never be assumed that true justice was given. These little type of small court claims regarding civil problems usually always went to the person who had something to offer, either the jury or the judge. There was a lot of quid pro quo going on. A lot of times those with higher status who had a lot of money would win the court case because the judge would be able to kind of use his friends or money, whatever he had in his pockets. And so there's really some defrauding going on here by having to use these cores. And that's kind of where Paul even says you guys are defrauding one another in verse 7. So Paul here is not saying that it's ever inappropriate to go to court. In fact, maybe just a helpful nuance here. Uh, it seems like there's a scandal or some story in evangelicalism every other couple of months about someone who is hiding some really bad illegal behavior and they use this passage to justify why the church shouldn't report illegal, illegal criminal behavior. So let me say something again. Paul would be horrified if he found out that people use this passage as a pretext to cover up illegal behavior. We are not talking about criminal law we're talking about civil law in this context. So any church that wants to use this passage as a cover-up for any sin or law or institutional silence or protection of abusive leaders when serious allegations are made would be in the wrong. Helpful nuance over. Hopefully that was helpful to you. So the type of courts in which Paul is regarding knows that there's not going to be justice. And, and Paul here, he's really trying to help them understand that if you see Pastor Carl and Pastor Aaron on Judge Judy next week fighting over $100, what does that say about the gospel? I mean, that, that might be the, the, the best modern illustration I can give you, is imagine when two believers go in front of the world with petty, trivial cases Paul knows that, one, this is unloving. And maybe the harshest chapter in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that love keeps no records of wrongs. 
Paul also knows these types of lawsuits and grievances, they're tearing the church's unity apart. And Paul has spent a lot of time trying to build up the unity. How can there be unity when people are suing one another? But more than this, they are losing their gospel witness. The, the, the community of God's people are to offer, they're to, to give a foretaste of the world in which God is preparing. And so if we act just like the world and, and make trivial cases against each other, we lose our gospel witness and our saltiness. But more than anything, Paul knows that with these grievances and these lawsuits among each other, they are not being true to who they are. They're not living in light of their future reality. If you notice in verses 1 through 8, Paul has a lot of these staccato-type rhetorical questions. And what he's trying to do is he's going from the greater to the lesser. If this is true ultimately, how much more true should this be now? And so again, what Paul is trying to show them is how who you are as saints, as God's people, should inform how you can handle these type of judicial conflicts now. And so if you look in verse 2, he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not incompetent to try trivial cases? Now, early in verse 1, he calls them saints. And now he's saying, don't you know that saints, which is literally God's holy people, they are going to be the ones who are judging angels. And we are the ones who will judge the world, not the other way around. Paul is saying, you're getting it mixed up. The world doesn't make judgments on the church. The church will make judgments on the world. Now, people might ask, well, what does that actually mean that we will one day judge the angels and judge the world? I don't know. No one really knows, but here, here's my best guess. I think what Paul is saying is not that one day you're going to see Michael the archangel and some other lesser angel get into a fight and you get to be the judge of who was right. More is he saying that based on our union with Christ, that we will rule with Christ and Christ is the judge, we will kind of be with Christ when he makes the judgments about the world. And so Paul is saying, with our union with Christ, and we will rule and reign with him, if that's true in the future, doesn't that mean you guys should be able to figure this out now? How immature of you, in essence, is what he's saying. So Paul here wants them to know that because of their future judicial role with Christ, that they can actually, actually settle petty disputes now. So then he kind of lays the hammer in verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Now, again, we have to re remember the Corinthians, they loved their wisdom. They thought they were so wise and they would circle around the best teachers. And so Paul is kind of using their pride against them. If you are so wise, why can't anyone settle what's happening? But instead, you bring these trivial cases in front of believers. Paul's point isn't just that they have lawsuits either. It's the fact that they even have these grievances at all. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Paul's even saying, as Christians, we should be the people who are peacemakers. And so you, you Corinthians, you care more about being vindicated in court than you do about your own kin. 
You care more about social reward and money and your status than you do your own brothers and sisters. And I say this to your shame. That they wanted the approval of the unbelievers more than they wanted to actually love those who are in Christ. And so in verse 7, this is where Paul, again, this is what Paul is doing. Almost every single issue in the book of 1 Corinthians, here's what Paul is trying to help them to do, is to see how you need to look through the cross and look through the gospel to apply the issues of life. He wants them to see how the gospel gives Christians a new way to deal with problems. And so this is what he says here, verse 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Some of us here, this may be a novel thought. And maybe some of us maybe need to think long and hard about what the Apostle Paul is saying. Has it ever occurred to you that maybe you don't need to get the last word in an argument? Has it ever dawned on you that maybe you don't need to seek retributive justice every single time you perceive a slight injustice? We love to be understood. We love to make sure that people see us in the right light. Paul says, you know what, sometimes you just need to absorb the conflict. Sometimes you just need to take it. Why not rather even be defrauded? I think that this is a great passage where I think intellectually we all think like, yeah, that's a great virtue. But when it happens to us, the horror As believers, though, we are called to live set-apart lives. We are to live like Christ did. It means that in this specific context, what Paul is really saying is that we do not repay evil with evil. When there is relational conflict, when there is petty grievances, when there is issues, we absorb we learn to suffer it. Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. The words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is what Christians do. That maybe you do find out that someone was gossiping about you. Well, instead of doing it in return, you are to bless them. Maybe someone does charge in the room and accuse you and assume the worst in you. Don't repay evil with evil. Maybe there are people who have silenced you out or hurt you or did things that's made you feel small. We turn the other cheek. And so instead of handling the relational and trivial differences in a Christ-like way, they said, I'm taking you to court. 
Supreme Court Justice Anton Scalia made an observation on this passage. He says this, I think that this passage has something to say about the proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. Paul is making two points. Paul says that the mediation of a mutual friend, such as the parish priest, should be sought before the parties run off to law courts. I think we are too ready today to see vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, are slow to sue. And so Paul's main gripe with these believers is this. You are so concerned not to lose out to a wrongdoer that you yourselves have become the wrongdoer. Verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. They were so worried about getting vengeance and getting back that in the process, they themselves have become the wrongdoers. And so instead of seeking vengeance, Christians are those who can learn to be outrageously forgiving because that is what has happened to them. I confess the other night I actually went to a play in downtown Seattle and it was fancy and it was fun and the play was on revenge and it made me uncomfortable and it made me think of that movie The Count of Monte Cristo where for some reason when I watched that movie I thought that revenge was good but all revenge is evil because really at the heart of these Corinthians' problems and the heart of our problem when we seek revenge and vengeance is we have forgotten the gospel. They are failing to be who they are and what they are. Christians are those who can learn to have humility that in seeing the only person only in terms of what they have done wrong, they can also see the ways in which they have done wrong and seek to correct it. A Christian, more than any other person, can learn to endure wrongdoing because we know that Christ endured wrong that he ought not to have endured. He was defrauded of what was rightfully his in order to give us what we never deserved. Christ absorbed our wrath, our sins, and to him we owe everything, even though he was innocent of all blame. We can absorb the cost of others' grievances against us when we understand that our identity is not touched when people sin against us. Consider this one commentator. He says this, if we have been financially wronged, we need to know that our net worth doesn't define us. If we have been relationally wronged, we need to know that our ultimate relationship is secure. Christ endured every imaginable wrong in order to win for us every imaginable right. Because of the gospel, we can be those who absorb, forgive, pursue reconciliation even when it doesn't make sense. Are there people in this room that you're somewhat cold towards? Are there people who you harbor resentment towards? Are there people who they've done things to you in the past and so the way to handle them is just to kind of marginalize them and pretend they're not there? When we do not embrace others, but rather we exclude or we eliminate them, we are showing ourselves to be just like these Corinthian believers. Forgetting who we are as God's holy people, as those who have been richly forgiven by the merit of Christ. 
And so I just want to help us to understand there are a lot of ways in which we can get back at people even if we don't take them to court. And I really hope I never see any Christians on Judge Judy. But let us never be guilty of marginalizing others, assuming the worst in others, ignoring them, gossiping about them, or becoming overly critical of others. But as those who are set apart, those who are holy, may we learn not to repay evil with evil, but may we learn to resolve conflict in a godly way. There's a million other things we could say about this, about the how-tos and the practicalities. Grab a Christian friend, ask them, what does it look like to resolve conflict in a godly way? But as we transition to verses 9 through 11, Paul is trying to tell them by them not being able to absorb the wrongdoing, they themselves have become wrongdoers. And now Paul makes a tie into verses 9 and 11 about those who do wrongdoing. And this is our, our second point. We learn to turn from wrongdoing. And I confess that when I was studying this passage, it seems like Paul just jumps to a completely new topic. How does this vice list connect anything to do with suing one another? I, I will admit in humility that when I study the Bible, I don't always know. Okay? And so it was helpful when I read the NIV. So if you do me a favor, if you have an NIV, raise your hand. Be brave. Good. Wow, more than you and I thought, actually. Um, verse 8, he says, but you yourselves wrong. So they are being wrong. Okay? You, you, kind of, you should just be wrong, okay? Um, verse 7. Then verse 8, you yourselves are wrong. Now verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous, now if you have NIV, that should say wrongdoers. So, so follow the logic. Paul says here in verse 7, Right? You ought to just take the wrong, verse 8, but instead you become wrongdoers. Verse 9, don't you know that wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God? So that's kind of the tie that, that Paul is hoping for them to see. I think the NIV translates that word unrighteous well by translating it as wrongdoers. But Paul gives this vice list, and even in chapter 5, he gave a shorter vice list, and I didn't spend much time on it last week, so I'll spend a little bit more time going through these nine or ten vices that Paul lists out. But before we get there, there's a few helpful remarks I want to say about what Paul is, is, is teaching. Paul here is saying that those who make an habitual practice of doing what is wrong are those who show themselves to not be in the kingdom of God. It could be very tempting, again, to read this list of vices and to say, well, I don't really struggle with any of these, or maybe I used to, so therefore I'm a good person. Since I don't do these bad things, I'm a good person, therefore I deserve heaven. Well, again, that would be a bad way of reading the New Testament. We do not do bad things and then become sinners. We do bad things because we are sinners. And so Paul here is making the point that those who continually practice habitually and are identified by wrongdoing, and again, this list is not exhaustive in any way, are really showing themselves to be part of Satan's kingdom. And so it could be tempting for us who maybe read this list and we see sins that we struggle with. Sins that I wish I didn't do. I, I, I know I shouldn't do this, but I, I struggle with this still, and I confess it, and I, and I have other brothers and sisters in which I try to repent of these sins, right? That is not who Paul is talking about. In fact, we should consider what 1 John chapter 3 says. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning is 
either, excuse me, I should read this again. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And so Paul is saying that those who make a practice of these sins will show themselves to disinherit their rights of being part of God's kingdom. The second thing I want to say about this list is nothing in this list ought to be controversial. Nothing in which Paul has said here has he not elsewhere said in the New Testament. Every single vice list that Paul gives in the New Testament is usually tailored to his audience. And so we see with the issues that the Corinthian church is struggling with, namely with sexual immorality and sins about greediness, it makes sense, the, the vices that he gives. But nothing here is, is out of the ordinary. It's all actually quite to be expected. And the third thing I'll say before we jump into this list is Paul doesn't really have a hierarchy of which sins are worse than others. There's a tendency where we can look at one or two of these sins and think those are really bad, but then look at other sins and think that's not as bad. Paul says it doesn't matter which sin it is. If you have a habitual lifestyle of any of these, you are showing yourself to not be of the kingdom. And so in verse 9 he says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In essence, he says, surely you know this, right? Surely you know that those who commit to a life of wrongdoing are not in the kingdom. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. This is the person who is a fornicator, who has sexual activity outside of the context of marriage between one man and one woman nor idolaters. I think this is one where, again, we probably skip over pretty quickly. You think, I don't bow down to an Asher pole, but consider what Paul says in Ephesians 5.5 5 and Colossians 3.5 when he talks about covetousness, which is idolatry. That idolatry is these, these sinful desires that we have, these greedy desires in which we worship the created more than the creator nor adulterers, those who are married and who have sex with someone other than their spouse. Hebrews 13.4 says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Next, Paul says, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, there has been a lot of scholarship in recent days about the usage that Paul has for this vice. And I think you can understand why so many people have re-examined these two words. There are some who try to make license that Paul didn't actually mean what he meant. He uses two words here to describe this concept of homosexual behavior. The first word is translated as soft or effeminate. And the other word is kind of a, a slang word that Paul probably picked up from Leviticus 18, but it means uh, man and bed, so a, someone who beds men. And some people like to make the point that Paul was really talking about this ancient practice of male homosexual prostitution, and the soft and effeminate refers to the young callboys, and so Paul is calling out this type of homosexual prostitution 
The big problem with that view is there is a very well-known word used to describe that practice, and Paul would have used that word. And so rather, I think a, a, a good translation of what Paul is saying is the passive and active role in homosexuality. And the ESV kind of cleans it up a little bit by just saying men who practice homosexuality. But let me be clear, whether from Romans 1 or 1 Timothy or from Leviticus, all sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman is sinful. And those who commit in a lifestyle of this sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. More than this, Paul says, thieves. This is the, where we get the word kleptomaniac, right? Klepto, someone who steals. They have uh, a desire for things that they actually take from their neighbor. More than this, the greedy, those with inordinate desires, the drunkards, Paul would later in 1 Corinthians get mad at the believers because they are getting drunk during communion. And Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, whether we are eating or whether we are drinking, we should do all things to the glory of God. Those who commit to a lifestyle of getting habitually drunk will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor revilers. Those who are verbally abusive, who gossip about one another, nor swindlers, those who cheat others. Again, Paul is not being exhaustive, but Paul is giving a, a, a list of saying those who commit to wrongdoing are showing themselves of who they belong to. A good tree will bear good fruit. A bad tree will bear bad fruit. It is not that you commit these things and then become a sinner. Like I said, it's because of their nature. This is why they habitually practice this. This is why in a Christian we should see repentance from these things. This is why we turn from sin. Because of the reality in which Paul follows this vice list. Here's what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. The reason why Christians do not habitually commit to doing wrongdoing, it's because it's not who they are anymore. It would be a great use of time to have many of you share your testimony of how you can look in these lists and see, yeah, I was that person. I was the drunkard. I was the fornicator. I was greedy, but Christ saved me. Paul here doesn't want to be overly obnoxious or mean or cruel, but he wants to point out this is no longer who you are. This is what you used to be. This is what you used to be marked by, but something radically has happened. You have been converted. And Paul gives three realities to talk about the change that has happened in all of us who are Christians. First, he says, but you were washed. Now, every believer in Corinth would have immediately assumed that Paul was talking about baptism. Not that we believe in baptismal re regeneration, which is what some people have said that Paul means here. Really, what, what baptism is, there's nothing, I point here because that's where we do the baptisms, right? You're like, what are you pointing at, right? Over there, sometimes we do baptisms, 
In that water, there's nothing magical about it, but, but what is happening in baptism is a, it's a picture of what has happened inwardly to us when we came to Christ, that, that, that his blood has made us clean. That, that when you go to your garden this afternoon and you get dirt all over your hands and you go to the water and just as water washes away dirt from your hands, so does the blood of Christ make us clean and we're dressed in his righteousness. Paul says you were sanctified. Literally, you were made holy. Sometimes we, we differentiate between progressive sanctification, the process of becoming holy, but we also have been definitively sanctified. In Christ, we are holy and we are becoming holy. This is who you are. And you are justified. You were declared right Justice has been met on your behalf when Christ went to the cross and he died for your sins. You have a right relationship with God. All of this is through Christ by the work of the Spirit. He's saying you've, you've changed. The new reality in you is that you commit a life to righteousness. And so we have to understand, friends, listen, Christianity is not about mere behavioral change. It's about actually being new. I am sure that you could find a caterpillar and tie it to a kite to make it fly. But the type of radical change that happens in the life of a Christian when you are in Christ is you are transformed. And you are not merely obeying as a schoolboy would in order to not get in trouble, but because you love your heavenly Father who in Christ by the Spirit has washed your sins away, has made you holy, and has declared you right. We are people who obey and who forgive and who love and pursue reconciliation because this is what God has done with us. So this is what some of you were. But now you are made holy. New reality, new status, new responsibility. Just when you first got married or became a parent. New status, great. But new responsibilities. As set-apart people, your new status, you are to live set apart people your responsibility I'll conclude by telling a brief story of my first time going to Africa I went to Nairobi Kenya and you know after a long plane flight and delays and all this we finally make it I'm half awake and we're meeting with two dozen or so African pastors, and so me and the missionary Eric Bells, we introduce ourselves and the, and the, the day and the schedule, and we ask every African pastor to go around and introduce themselves. And they began to introduce themselves, and they would say something like this, I am Andrew, and I am saved. I am Thomas, I'm forgiven. I'm Onesimus, I'm a child of God. I'm Sarah, I am loved by God. Now, at first, I didn't really understand 
what exactly they were doing. I thought this is like one of those weird cultural things. I know Africans love their greetings. It seems a little weird. But then it slowly dawned on me. What they were saying is the most important thing about me. After I say my name, I am loved by God. I am called by God. I am forgiven. All of my sins have been washed away. That was their identity. That was who they were. Now, I hope the takeaway from this sermon is not necessarily that people here feel like they can't introduce themselves by saying who they're married to or what they do. Nor do I really wish for us to be like those African pastors every time we introduce ourselves, we say who we are in Christ. Talk can be cheap. But here's the takeaway. As holy people, we are to live as holy people. We learn to suffer wrongdoing and we learn to turn from wrongdoing because this is our very identity. We need to be who we already are in Christ. And so my question for you is to consider, are your current efforts consistent with your future glory? As a Christian, you did not make your identity. You did not form it. It is given to you. And you could have no better identity than to be in Christ and dressed in his righteousness. And so in light of this wonderful identity, let us at times learn to suffer wrongdoing. Let us turn from it habitually. And may we, as Christ did, seek a life of meekness and long-suffering. And hopefully, when others meet us, we can demonstrate not just with our words, but with our character, that what is most important about us is that we belong to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you have made us holy. We are your people. God, what a wonderful gift of grace it is to have a new identity, to have a new status. God, not, not even to mention the new privileges we have, that we can boldly approach your throne, that we can be like children before you, Lord. God, you have so richly blessed us with Christ, but Lord, it has also come with new values a new life of responsibilities. God, by the power of your spirit through the grace of the gospel, help us, Lord, each day from one degree of glory to another, continue to grow into who we are as your holy, set-apart people. God, by your grace and your strength, we pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.